So welcome. If this is your first Sunday back since starting the new year, we're glad to see you again. Uh, last Sunday, we kicked off our 40 Days of Prayer initiative. We're actually joining with the rest of our denomination in prayer centered on this idea of reawakening to Jesus. So we're not in this alone. We're not doing this by ourselves. CMA churches across the country, I don't even, I don't, maybe globally, I'm not sure, um, are participating in this together. We're, we're seeking Jesus together. We're using the same devotionals. We're using the same sermon outlines. We're purposing to use the first 40 days of this year in prayer. And I love this idea of reawakening to Jesus because it, imp it implies that we've been awake before. And Eric last week talked about all of these awakenings that have happened in just the history of the United States, in the history of the West. And those are awesome. And we know something is there. But it also implies that we've been asleep. In 2019, <coughs> excuse me, I had the opportunity to hear a pastor who was part of the underground church movement in a closed country. And he told us a story about how uh, he and his wife lived in America after they first got married. And he had grown up in America, but she had grown up in this closed country. And while they lived in America, he told us that his wife stopped going to church. She didn't want to go to church on Sunday mornings. And when he asked her why, she said it was because it's like the church in America has fallen asleep to a satanic lullaby. And she didn't want to fall asleep too. She didn't want to be part of it. And when I first heard this story, I was super incredulous. I was like, okay, the church in America has got some problems, but sleeping to a satanic lullaby feels a touch judgmental and you don't know us, which is a very American response, right? <laughs> but this story has stuck with me for nearly three years now. I think about it all of the time because I think that it's true. I think the American church has been sleeping for some time. And not just sleeping, lulled into a false sense of security. Lulled into believing that our success or failure in the kingdom of God has something to do with whoever is in political office. Lulled into demanding convenience. Lulled into expecting comfort. Lulled into confusing and equating economic prosperity with blessing from God. If you need a lesson in that, read the book of Amos. They're not the same thing. I remember praying about this shortly after hearing that story because the Lord had begun speaking to me about the truth of what she said. And as I was praying, the Lord gave me this picture. And in this picture, I saw people who I love, people that I know and love, and who I know love the Lord, going about their normal activities, except they were about knee-deep in molasses or something like it. It was a heavy, viscous material, and it slowed everything down. Everything was covered. Everything was affected. People were just slogging through, heavy and inhibited. But the thing that struck me about this picture was the fact that no one noticed just moved about like everything was fine and normal, happy even, content, like there wasn't three feet of gooey thick sludge all around them. And I think no one noticed because it had been going on for so long. So everything felt fine and normal. 
because no one remembered what life could be like instead. No one realized that things could be different. And that picture has never left me either. The Lord began to awaken something in me in early 2020. And I don't know what else to call it besides a holy discontent. He brought me to a place where I could look at myself and say, I think I've been sleeping. I think I've been settling. I think I've been lulled into a false sense of comfort and convenience. I think I've been sold a cheap bill of goods and I haven't had the good sense to recognize it. And I don't want to be part of that anymore. I don't want that for myself. I don't want that for this church. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for this community. I don't want that for the American church because that's not the kingdom of God. That's not what a life and a body that is fully awake and fully alive in Jesus Christ looks like. And I know I'm not alone. I know there have been similar stirrings in some of you, similar feelings, that same kind of holy discontent happening in the lives of some of you, happening in the hearts and minds of people all across this country. And it's time to wake up. So let's do it. Let's reawaken to Jesus. Let's come into this morning expecting that the Lord is at work and has things to say. And I think the right thing to do before we continue is to pray. So Jesus, we lift up this time to you. We thank you that you speak to us, that you call to us, that you change our hearts. And we ask that you would use the power of your word to do that this morning. Amen. So this whole series, the next several weeks of our time together, is going to be spent talking about waking up to the reality of who Jesus is and what he is doing on this earth and in his kingdom. Uh, Eric kicked off this series last week with a message of reawakening to the glory of Jesus Christ. He talked about how um, this 40 days is, is about more than just being prayer-driven or purpose-driven. These 40 days are about being person-driven, the person of Jesus the glory of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, that those things would grow larger and larger in our hearts. That's the goal, more of Jesus, awakening to Jesus. This week, we're continuing in that vein by talking about reawakening to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Why did his life matter? Why did his death matter? Why did his resurrection matter? Why do they still matter to us? We're going to start our journey in the book of Hebrews, um, the first chapter. And before we jump in, we need to understand what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. We don't know who the author is. It's a mystery. But that doesn't matter because the author's point is clear. And that is the exaltation of Jesus. Whatever is being communicated in the book of Hebrews is being communicated to that end. That Christ is exalted. That the person and majesty of Jesus would grow larger and larger in our hearts. So we see words like more excellent, superior, better, used quite often in reference to how Christ compares to everything else. 
as a revelation from God, he is superior to all that came before him. As a prophet of God, he is superior to all that came before him. As a human person, he is superior in a way that we could never be. As a spiritual being, he is superior to all other spiritual beings. Do you get it? That is the book of Hebrews. The problem was the audience was stuck in their belief. How is Jesus better? How is the new covenant under Jesus superior? How is Jesus superior to Moses? They couldn't get past some of these ideas. And I think that our modern culture is stuck in a similar state, asking similar questions. Jesus is fine for you, but maybe not the right choice for someone else. Maybe what is superior for you isn't superior for someone else. And we whittle Jesus down to a caricature or an example in moralistic stories or just another option. And the author of Hebrews has the audacity to say, no, there is no one better. There is nothing better than the person of Jesus Christ. That his life and death weren't just sources of good stories. They were necessary to human history. So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. this is what it says. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him the heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The end. I'm kidding. That's not the end. Um, There's literally so much there and we don't have time. But what the author is saying here is like, look, God has revealed things to us in a variety of ways through a variety of people over time. But something has changed because God has now revealed things to us through his son. And what makes that different? That's what the author tells us in the first three verses. He is saying that something about this revelation of what God is doing right now is different because that revelation is Jesus. He is the son of God. He is the means of creation. He is the ultimate revelation. In other words, Jesus is the focal point of all that God had been doing through human history and all that God will do through human history. All that came before mattered, but it was all pointing to Jesus. So when we ask the question, why does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus matter? It's because of this. There is nothing greater than Jesus, and there will never be anything greater than Jesus. But I want to break that down more, and the author of Hebrews does too, because if Jesus is the Son of God, the means of creation, and the ultimate revelation, did he really have to come and live and die and then live again? Yes. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about why Jesus' life matters. And to do that, we're going to jump to Hebrews chapter 2. Because the the path that the author begins in chapter 1 continues into chapter 2. First, he's telling us, like, here's the thing. Jesus is everything. But if I need to break it down for you, I will. So let's talk about him as a human being. So picking up in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard. He's saying, because Jesus is the revelation, the ultimate revelation, then that means we should pay attention that much more so that we will not drift away. 
For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders and various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. He's saying if Jesus is superior, then we should cling to that revelation of salvation that much more, because there's not going to be a better revelation. If that message of great salvation that came through Jesus came through the actual person of Jesus Christ. He talks about that. People heard it. They told us. They heard him say it. He spoke it. It was heard. It was communicated to us. It's not some untangible thing. Jesus is God, and he is superior, and that's what we learned in chapter 1, but he is also a human being that we encountered, that we interacted with. Let's pick this up in verse 9. For he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we're talking about. This is saying that it's not angels who are going to rule over the new heavens and new earth. But someone somewhere has testified, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that God's, by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. We're getting to it. Why did Jesus' life matter? Hang on. Let's pick this up in 10. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. I actually want to read verse 10 again. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, that's you and me, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer that's Jesus, of our salvation perfect through suffering. Suffering is the human experience. All humans suffer. The author is drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus, who is the ultimate revelation from God, the very nature of God himself, had to suffer as well. Not only had to, it was appropriate that he should do so. It was appropriate for the word, the eternal God, to become flesh and live the life experience that we all live. Suffering, grief, sickness, disappointment, betrayal, the dumb things that happen to us in life that are just unfair. It was appropriate for Jesus to go through those things. Why? Because he gets it. He relates to it. So the one who sanctifies, Jesus, the one who makes us more like himself, and the ones being sanctified, us, who are in the process of becoming more like Jesus, go through the same experience. Jesus did not come out of his human experience unscathed. He died. And it was pretty gruesome and horrifying. It was humiliating. It was unfair. It was unjust but it was necessary. We're going to jump to 
verse 14. This is what he says. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus' life matters because we needed him. We have been looking for a certain person throughout all of biblical history. It begins in Genesis 3 when God tells the serpent that a son of the woman would crush his head. It continues in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17 when God promises Abraham this offspring, this seed that would be a blessing to the nations. We see it in the establishing of the priesthood, in the sacrificial system, in Exodus and Leviticus. Who is going to be that faithful person that can mediate between the people and God? that can atone for the sins of, a pe- of the people in a way that lasts, that doesn't have to be repeated, that can lead people in the uncorrupted worship of God. We're promised a king through the line of David that will come and establish justice and peace and will reign forever. The kingdom will never end. We're promised a prophet like Elijah, but better. We're promised a person, and that person is Jesus. He is the son that will crush the head of the serpent. He is the offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations will be blessed. He is the merciful and faithful high priest who has made eternal atonement for our sins, who has covered us in his blood and by his name, and who will lead us in uncorrupted worship of the Lord. He is the son of David whose kingdom will never end. He is the prophet like Elijah, but better, superior. He is the ultimate revelation from God because he is God, but he is also a person. We need to wake up to the life of Jesus because he is the one we've been waiting for. Our person who lived so that he could die. And that's why the death of Jesus matters. Jesus' life matters because his death matters. Again, Jesus did not come out of his human experience unscathed. But he did come out of his human experience sinless. A whole human being. The perpetual human problem, the one that we can't fix or escape from, that has been a problem from the very beginning, has been pride and rebellion doing what I want, deciding what is right in my own eyes. Jesus' human solution to that problem was humility and obedience to the Father. He never turned away from God. He never rebelled against God. He even said, I don't do anything apart from the Father. And he said that as a human person. Jesus lived the ultimate human experience, and that's why his death makes a difference. He wasn't just a a good man. He's the eternal God become human, God with us, among us, one of us. John chapter 1 tells us he made his home with us. 
to rescue, to restore, to revive. Jesus became human and suffered death, not just so that he could relate to us, but so that he could destroy the one who held the power of death. When you go through it and you come out on the other side of it, you get a say in how the game gets played. And there was a long game in Jesus's humanity. And that game was made clear the second he walked out of the tomb. It changed everything. I think it's one of the biggest bummers in life that nobody saw it. <laughs> that it was the moment Jesus walked out of the tomb, no one was there for it. I mean, we all saw after the fact, but no one was there for it. And he was so chill about it, just like gets up from the dead. It's like, I'm done with that. Folds his grave clothes and walks out of the tomb. Jesus's life was necessary because his death was necessary. That's what brought freedom from the power of bond, from the bondage of sin, from the power of fear and death. That's what destroyed the power of the evil one. It's not anything that we do. It's not anything that we can accomplish or achieve. It's Jesus, the one who is superior. It's his victory. So we talk about his, how his life matters and how his death matters, but we can't talk about either of those things without talking about the resurrection. What is his life without the resurrection? What is his death without the resurrection? They all go together. They're all tied to one another. His life matters because he came to die. His death matters because he came to live again. His resurrection is what changed everything. It changes the very nature of how the game gets played. And so when we're talking about Jesus' resurrection and why it matters, we're actually going to jump to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, because I really love the way the Apostle Paul handles this topic. So in the Greco-Roman world, the thought was that when your body died, it was dead. There was no continuity. It was done. It was going to decay. That was final. You may continue as a disembodied spirit. Like, there's no one who's saying that that's not going to happen, but there was no physical body anymore. And this idea started to infiltrate the church. And so the Corinthian church was starting to have problems with this, and then there became this question of, is there actually a resurrection from the dead? And Paul, especially with the Corinthian church, often had to step into situations and say, no, no, that's not a road we're going down. So he wrote this letter hoping to correct those believers and bring wisdom to the situation. So here's what he says, beginning uh, in verse 1 in chapter 15. He says, now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to Scriptures. So he's saying, let's go over this again. This is what I preached to you. This is what you've taken your stand on. Christ died for our sins, according to scripture. Should not have been a surprise to us. He was buried. He was put into a tomb, dead. He was raised up again to life on the third day, according to scriptures. This has all been told to us. It's not new. Continuing in verse 5. 
So he was raised on the third day according to scripture, and he also appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. We've seen him. That's what Paul is saying. We have proclaimed to you what we, what hundreds of us, literally hundreds of us have seen, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried and was raised up again. We've seen this. It's true. This is the basis of our faith. This is what we stand on. And here's what I appreciate about Paul. Paul is not without compassion. And I think sometimes people talk about Paul like he's, he is like hard, and he is hardline, but he's not without compassion. He is not without patience. But there are times when you can see that his ability to empathetically understand reaches its limit. And we see that in this chapter. We actually see that a lot with the church in Corinthians. They had some issues. But let's jump to verse 12 because Paul is running out of He's reaching that line. So beginning in verse 12, this is what he says. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. He's saying everything that we believe, everything that we have received and taken our stand upon hinges on whether or not Jesus walked out of that tomb. Verse 15. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ when he did not raise up Christ if in fact the dead are not raised. For at the if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. That is the end of the story. If Christ didn't walk out of that tomb, we're liars who have wasted our time and our lives. The good news is that Paul is trying to correct and correct thinking, so we're not done. We're going to jump to verse 20. And this is what he says, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The life of Jesus matters because through one human person, Adam came death. But through this one human person, Jesus comes life, bodily, eternal life. He lived, he died, and he lived again, and so will we. And he finishes this beginning in verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, Christ is the first fruits to rise from the dead. Afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be abolished is death. The Son is the resurrected Messiah the long-awaited one, the one with the eternal kingdom, the one who is going after the ultimate enemy, death. 
If we believe that is true, then it should change literally everything about our lives. Because ours is a resurrection faith, a raised from the dead faith. And you can't be raised from the dead if you ain't dead to begin with. If you were never alive. But he is alive. And we are alive through him. The worship team can come back up. There is a story uh, in Mark chapter 5 about a little girl who was sick and died. Her father had sent word to Jesus uh, to come and heal her because she, she, was, it, it was, she was on her way out. And on the way, Jesus gets delayed and ends up healing another person. Uh, and the little girl dies in the meantime. And obviously, this was upsetting to her family because death is final. But I want to pick this story up in verse 35. It's not gonna, you're just going to have to listen because it's not going to be on the screens. But I trust in your ability to listen. So this is Mark 5, verse 35. While he was still speaking, people came from the the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? And when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. And they came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. And he went in and he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and he took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and he entered the place where the child was. Then he, looked, he took the child by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated to you, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. And at this, they were utterly astounded. I like that Jesus equates death to sleep in this passage because it means that he equates life to waking up. And we need to wake up. The idea of sleeping to a satanic lullaby feels dramatic because it is. The idea of walking around in several feet of thick goo feels dramatic because it is. The evil one wants to keep us in bondage to fear and sin and death. The evil one does not want us to be awake and fully functioning under the power of who Jesus is or what he has done or what he will continue to do. But the whole point of today's message is that Jesus is superior to the evil one. And he proved that through his life, death, and resurrection. And Jesus says, wake up. Get up. You don't have to be dead in your sins any longer. You don't have to be asleep any longer. And listen to me, because you know what? By the sound of his word, by his victory on the cross, by the power demonstrated when he walked out of the tomb, that is all it takes. You don't have to be dead in your sins any longer. You don't have to be asleep under the deception of the evil one any longer. 
Ours is a resurrection faith, a raised from the dead faith. And when Jesus says, get up, wake up, you get up. I suspect that the Holy Spirit is waking up some people in this room. I suspect that the Holy Spirit is going to be waking up people all over the place because that's what we're asking for and that's what Jesus is asking us to do. Wake up. There is no one better than Jesus. There is nothing better than Jesus. There is no one who can do what Jesus can do. And he's, he's the only one who can do it. We're about, we're going to sing a song about Jesus. And part of my prayer for us this morning is that our hearts would reflect the posture of the psalmist from Psalm 57 when he says, I will sing. I will sing praises. Wake up, my soul. I will praise you, Lord. It's time to stop sleeping. It's time to go to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And there is nothing better than Jesus. So Lord, we lift up each person in this room, each heart, each life. You know every, every situation, every circumstance, every hurt, every pain, every lie that we would believe that would keep us asleep. We ask that you would wake us up by the power of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to wake up that our hearts and our lives would be responsive to you that we would hold you as greater and superior to every other thing. Thank you for your life and your death and your resurrection. Thank you for what it means for us, for what it means for the future, for what it means for your kingdom. Thank you that you have given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, that same power that raised you from the dead is the same power that lives with us and in us. Lord, help us to live in that. That we would be people who wake up and live again. Be at work in this church. Be at work in this community. We say not unto us, but to you, to your glory, to your honor. As we sing this song, we ask that you would receive blessing it's all about you. Help us to take the focus off of ourselves, the lie of self, and put our focus on the truth of the Son. Thank you for the work that you have started, the work that you will continue to do. We ask that in each heart and mind, you would begin to point out places where we have been sleeping and where we need to wake up. Help us to wake up. And we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus.